All right. Hello, Christ community. Greetings to all of our venues and uh, campuses. We are so glad that all of you are here. <clears throat> Happy Mother's Day to all the moms and grandmas and moms-to-be. We're grateful for all that you do and for the love that you pour out. Um, by the way, last weekend um, in our services, we had 58 baptisms, which is awesome. Uh, yeah, it's awesome. <clears throat> Such a fun weekend seeing the lives of so many people who have been touched by Jesus. Okay, so every, every spring I, I get to witness a miracle, uh, at least it feels that way to me. Uh, a few weeks ago I went into our shed and I dusted off our lawnmower and started up and began mowing our, our lawn. I, I mean, I guess you could call it a lawn. It was more like brown, lifeless straw, right? Um, it looked even worse compared to our neighbors, one of our neighbors, who by February always has Augusta National in his front lawn. You know, it just... It's really annoying uh, I don't know if you have a, a neighbor like that. But so not to be outdone, you know, I, I mowed and then and then headed to get some weed and feed and I spread it on our brown lawn. Right. And then I watered it. And, and within hours, I mean, within hours, it started to turn green. <clears throat> it's still not Augusta National, but it's green. OK, I mean, it's amazing to me how quickly life can appear out of what seemed to be dead. Now, here's a thought. Wouldn't it be cool if our relationships were that way? Wouldn't it be cool if uh, in the midst of relationships that are kind of brown and dormant, wouldn't it be cool if there was some relational weed and feed that we could just apply, right? And suddenly those relationships would come to life. Our marriage that had been feeling increasingly routine and it suddenly felt energized or, or a strained relationship between a parent and a child suddenly felt relaxed and joy-filled or a, a critical boss suddenly becomes encouraging. Or, or rather than feeling relationally isolated, we began to feel more connected to the people around us. Wouldn't it be awesome if there was weed and feed for our relationships? Well, today we're starting a four-week teaching series entitled Relationships. And in this series, we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture where God provides for us some spiritual fertilizer for our relationships, some very practical relational principles that can pour life into our relationships, no matter how difficult, no matter how lifeless. God has given us some amazing wisdom as it relates to improving our relationships. And when we apply these things, it can make a significant difference in our entire relational world. Now, our focus in these four weeks is on Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to, to 15. And I want to read a portion of this passage for us. And then we're going to spend most of our time today on the first verse. So here's the passage. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. <clears throat> and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is God's Words. So this one passage is a gold mine in terms of how we can improve our relationships. And it can all be summarized in one word, which, which is mentioned in verse 14. Um, read, this, read this verse 14. Read it out loud with me as it comes up on the screen there. <clears throat> and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. See, love is the key ingredient to healthy relationships relationships, right? There's no surprise there. The challenge really is 
more is, is how we define love. I mean, we use the word love all the time. I love to play golf. I love sweet tea. I love my wife. Are, are those in the same category? <clears throat> Not even close. My wife was probably holding, you know, she, if she hears this, she might be holding her breath, wondering what I would say about sweet tea, but they're not in the same category, even though I really like sweet tea a lot, okay? So, but, but seriously, even though I'm using the same word love, it doesn't mean close to the same thing. And then, of course, we have to throw in the way love is so often used today in songs and music, where love is defined as this chemistry we have with another person. Love is something we feel with them. It's something we fall into or fall out of. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips, right? And there's no tenderness like before in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it, but baby, baby, I know it. Everyone, here we go. You've lost what? You've lost that loving feeling, right? Now it's gone. Some of you were starting to sing there. Good job. Okay. Now it's gone, gone, gone. I mean, is that what love is? This feeling that can just be gone, gone, gone? I mean, even though this is often how our society defines love, it is not how God defines love. In the passage in, in Colossians here, where Paul says that love is really what holds all together, the, the, the word he uses here is the Greek word agape. And, and the essence of the word agape is not about feelings. It is, it's about action. It is a, it, it's describing the intentional action of choosing to put someone else's needs before our own. See, in other words, agape love is something we can choose. It is an act of our will. It is not about feelings. The feelings may or may not be there. That doesn't change the fact that love is a choice we can make. So do you see why it is so important that we define what love is? Because if we, do, if, if we adopt our society's definition of love, then we will live our lives chasing an elusive feeling, hoping that our relationships will have this special chemistry. But if we're willing to adopt God's definition of love, we can choose to love whether we feel like it or not. We can choose this. And when we make that choice to love, it often changes the atmosphere of our relationships. That's how powerful this kind of love can be. It can, it can literally shift the relational atmosphere in our workplace, in our homes, in our schools. This kind of love has the power to change people's hearts. In fact, one of the results one of the results of choosing, of us choosing this kind of love, um, this kind of love that God's talking about here, one of the results is that we actually often, we actually become more likable. We become more likable. We become the kind of person that people want to be like, they want to be around, they want to be with. Like Jesus. I mean, Jesus lived agape love and people were drawn to him. People's lives were changed by it. I mean, it is that powerful. And all of us here can choose to demonstrate this kind of love. It's amazingly powerful and all of us here can choose it. Okay, now before we talk about what this kind of love looks like, specifically, <clears throat> I want us to take, take a moment here, um, because Paul does here, and I want us to talk about how we can walk in it. How can we choose to love when it's really hard to do so? 
Well, Paul tells us right at the start of this passage, this is, this is the foundation to all the other stuff we're going to talk about. Look with me at the first thing he says here. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with love. See, how do we choose to clothe ourselves with agape love in our relationships? Well, there's only one way. We do it by remembering and drinking deeply of and focusing on the agape love that we have already been given in Christ, right? Jesus gave his life for us on the cross. It was an act of, of absolutely um, selfless, uh, sacrificial, unconditional love. We did not deserve it. We did not deserve it, but he did it anyway for us. Because he loved us and he wanted us to be in a, in a relationship with him. So, so, so as we go through this list, we're going to do that. We're going to go through this list of specific ways to love, specific ways to cultivate healthy relationships. As we go through this list, I want us to always keep in the back of our mind that we are already recipients of this kind of love. We are already recipients of this kind of love, this kind of unconditional, undeserved love. All the things we're going to talk about here are already specific ways that Jesus is loving us. All of them. They're, they're all ways that, that Jesus is demonstrating and has demonstrated his love for us. Okay, so, so that's really, really important foundation. And now what he wants, with that foundation, he wants to help us demonstrate these kinds of things to other people. So because you and I are loved by him, we can choose to love others in that same way. It's a choice. Okay, so again, with that very important foundation... What does this agape love look like? Well, in verse 12, Paul shows us this whole passage, but we're going to focus on verse 12 here. He gives us, in this one verse, he gives us a five-word description of what agape love looks like. Five very practical, specific actions we can do that can shift the atmosphere of our relationships for the better. <clears throat> whatever context we're talking about, workplace, school, friendships, neighborhood, family, we can shift the atmosphere of our relationships through these five things, these five choices we can make. So first, first, he, the, the list here is compassion. Compassion. Paul says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. Okay, so what is compassion. The actual wording that Paul uses here is really, really interesting because he uses two words. He uses two Greek words to talk about this. One was a word that was typically used in this kind of a context. It, was, it means pity or, you know, mercy, compassion, that kind of thing. It was often used in this way. So Paul uses that word, but then he adds another word. He adds another word with it. And this other word literally means intestines. Intestines. It means bowels. Now, Paul is not talking about irritable bowel syndrome here, okay? He, he's not trying to describe that. What he's doing, he's adding clarity and power to that initial word. These two words together, they speak of this deeply rooted compassion. It is not simply a casual um, a pity or, or feeling sorry for someone. That's not what he's talking about here. The words here, these words he uses intentionally speak of our hearts being moved by a situation, the, the situation or the suffering of another person. Feeling it in our gut. Feeling it in our gut. Another word we could use to describe this is empathy. 
right? Empathy is feeling with people. It's feeling with people. We are connecting to what they are feeling. One of the speakers um, at some of the leadership uh, summit events that we've been involved in over the last several years in, in August, but one of the speakers there has been a, a gal named uh, Dr. Brene Brown, who has really some great insight into this relational side of leadership. You can get on YouTube and type, you know, type her name and bring some stuff up on empathy. It's really, really, in a leadership context, it's really, really good. But she talks a lot about empathy. And she, she says, and I think she's right on here, that, 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 that empathy is this very vulnerable choice we make. It is a very vulnerable choice we make. It is to feel what this other person feels. Now, now, now think about this, and here's why it's so vulnerable. What do, we mo- what, do we, what do we often do when someone shares something with us that they're feeling? What do we, what do we often do? We try to fix it, right? We try to fix it. We give advice. We, you know, you should do this. You know, so, so someone says to us, man, I'm, I'm so discouraged about my test yesterday. Well, study harder next time. You can do better. See, we're often uncomfortable feeling with people. And so, because and it's just vulnerable. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to fix it. So what do we do? We, we'd rather not feel that. We'd rather not do that. So what do we do? We just fix it. Just try and fix it. But folks, often there is no fix. There is no fix. This person, often, they just want to be understood. They just want to be heard. So Dr. Brown um, points out another uncompassionate response, the the fixing thing. This is kind of a cousin of it, but, but she says that's when we use the word at least. Anytime we say something, we're feeling something, and the person uses the phrase at least, um, you know, you're probably in trouble if you're the one using the word at least. So, for instance, someone says, man, I I think my marriage has fallen apart. Well, at least you have a marriage. (laughs) That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, You know, I I feel, man, I feel so, I'm just grieving. I feel so sad about my miscarriage. Well, at least you can try again to have children. See, I mean, this, this, this word, comments like that, they totally miss the person's heart. But it makes us feel better because, oh, now we can say something, right? We can try and fix something. or what, you know, it, It's really, it's, it's not about us entering into this place of vulnerability. It's about us just trying to say something. And so we miss people's heart all the time. We miss people's hearts. So to have compassion is to feel with another person rather than trying to fix them or cheer them up or whatever. And often that, that, is, that, is, that, is, that, often that is way more challenging to do. It just is, and that's why we don't do it very well. It's way more vulnerable. We're way more vulnerable. And we just don't like that as much. There was a season in my life, excuse me, actually my, my wife's life in Raylene, she had been struggling with some chronic back pain for, for a long time, over a year She'd been to multiple specialists and massage people and doctors, all of which said, oh yeah, we can help you. And then she'd do the, all the treatment stuff and then they weren't able to help her. And, and so while this was going on, you know, I would periodically, I'd, uh, you know, ask her how she was doing. And I was concerned, but usually I would respond with, well, well, you need to see the doctor, you know, about that. And always trying to fix, right? I mean, again, I, I was concerned, but it really wasn't at the forefront of my thinking. Well, well then I did something to my back. It hurt. Um, and so, so after a few days of my pain, I started to say something to Raylene about it, you know, talking about it. As I was describing this to her, 
I realized, I had this sort of internal realization, this is, this is what she's been for the, experiencing for the past year. Time to keep your mouth shut, tough guy, right? You know, it was one of those moments. But, but seriously, suddenly I felt greater compassion for her. I, I started to think, what would it look like to struggle with what I'm struggling with right now? What would it look like to struggle with that for a year? It, it just changed my perspective and, and my response to her. See, genuine compassion begins with feeling with people rather than trying to fix people. Connecting our hearts to what they're experiencing. I mean, imagine the impact in our relationships. Imagine the impact. This is huge. Imagine the impact. If our instinctive response when someone is hurting, if our instinctive response is not to fix and it's not to give advice, but rather was to just listen and be attentive to their emotions, to connect our hearts with what they're walking through. See, this is why, this is why in our For the City and Beyond vision, which we launched a couple months ago, where we're focusing on nine areas of need in our community and refugees and poverty and children and families, all this. This is why, um, if you've been around here, you know, this is why when we talk about this, we we're all, we're constantly talking about us as a church activating our hearts towards these needs. It's, it's more than, hey, let's just, you know, give, you know, it's, it's, it's activating our hearts. It's getting connected relationally with a refugee family or, or with a family in poverty. See, this is, this is about being with people rather than just ministering to people. Now think about that because that's really, really important. <laughs> it's about being with people rather than just ministering to people. And that is a huge paradigm shift. But, but you see, it's the being with people that opens the door for us to be compassionate. John Steinbeck, author John Steinbeck once wrote this. He said, it means very little to know that a million Chinese are starving unless you know one Chinese who is starving. It means very little to know that a million Chinese people are starving unless you know one that's starving. That changes everything. This is so true. It is, so, it is easy to talk generally about children in poverty in our community. I mean, we, we can talk about that. And it's a need, it's huge need, all that. It's easy to talk about that. But the moment you begin tutoring a child with our Kids Hope program, and you kind of get to know them, and you see the family environment they're in, and, I mean, you connect relationally, or the, or the moment you see a, a person in a family situation or whatever, a refugee family, whatever, you get to know them, it changes your perspective. <clears throat> changes your perspective. We had our first uh, For the City and Beyond Engage meeting um, last Wednesday, a gathering. We just focused on how to connect with children and families in need. That was a whole heartbeat. It's just, what could we do? We talked about kids hope. We talked about some other ways just to relationally connect and help the, there were like that, 50 or 60 people there, which is awesome. Started just people passionate about this. And, and we want to, we'll talk more about this, but it's ways we can relationally connect with children or families that are in need in our community. It's, again, it's relational connections. So I, I talked with someone in, our, in an e-group <clears throat> last weekend, and they were just talking about how <clears throat> in their group, they were exploring um, connecting with the refugee community 
of Christ Community, at Christ Community International. It's a refugee community church we have down at Zoe's. And, uh, and they have some children ministry needs and all that. And, and this e group is exploring that. I thought that is, that's awesome. Because one of the, one of the best ways to, to, to experience compassion, genuine compassion, is to get to know people. See, out of these relational connections, genuine compassion can happen. Okay, so compassion is a huge way to pour life into our relationships. Again, it's something we ourselves have received from Jesus. We can choose to demonstrate this with others. A second loving action that can pour life into our relationships is kindness. Kindness. Paul says here in verse 12, clothe yourselves with kindness. Kindness. So what is, what is kindness? That may be a really obvious question, but I was, as I was preparing this message, I, I realized something. I think sometimes we have an inaccurate definition of kindness. See, sometimes we view being kind and being nice as the same thing. And I don't think they are. I don't think they are. You ever had a conversation? Let me explain here. Here's what I mean. You ever had a conversation with someone who is being nice to you? And yet you knew the minute they got home, they would be verbally ripping you to shreds. Niceness doesn't require an authentic heart. See, sometimes being nice is fake. It's fake. It's flattery. It's trying to impress. It's saying words that don't really align with your heart, but you're saying them anyway. That's being nice. In contrast to that, kindness is rooted in love. It is an authentic expression of love towards another person. And it's amazingly powerful in our relationships. It's something that can immediately pour life into people. It is something that can immediately diffuse a potentially angry situation. Some of you maybe have experienced this. Someone expresses anger to you and you know in that moment, if you power up, this is going to get ugly. But if suddenly you power down and demonstrate kindness, changes the whole dynamic of where that conversation goes. And here's the deal. Kindness is something, it doesn't cost us anything financially. It doesn't cost us anything financially, and yet it can have such a powerful impact. In fact, think, think about this. What kind of, which, kind of a person, which kind of a person do you prefer to be around? Someone who is kind or someone who is rude? Who do you prefer to be around? Someone who's kind or someone who's rude? Someone who is not smiling or someone who is smiling, right? Someone who's scowling or someone who's smiling. I I just wonder, in in our emails, in our Facebook posts, I mean, sometimes the thing about social media is we feel, I don't know, like we have a little bit more freedom to be rude because we're not face to face with this person. Maybe we're even doing it anonymously or whatever, but you know, we have this, it's, it's, it's unfortunate because I, I, think, I don't think it's really healthy. So we can be a lot ruder and say a lot ruder things on social media because we're kind of, there's an anonymity to it. Um, but I, I just wonder in our, in our emails, in our Facebook posts, in our responses, in our communication with people in our office, are we kind to people? Are we respectful and positive and gracious or are we rude? Is there a kindness in how we speak to our waitress? 
Is there a kindness in how we speak to our parents? Is there a kindness in how we speak to our roommate, our, our children, our spouse? And, I mean, it's sad. It's so sad that the, sometimes in our closest relationships, the people who are, are uh, technically stuck with us, right? Um, it's, it's sad that in our closest relationships, we often stop being kind. We're often way kinder to, to other people than we are, for example, to our spouse. What's that about? We stop offering affirmation and compliments. We, we perhaps say critical things about our spouse in front of other people. We, we stop expressing appreciation for the meals that are cooked and the laundry that's done and the hard work that provides for our family and the, the emptying the dishwasher or whatever. Those things, here's the deal, those things become expectations in our mind rather than the acts of love that they truly are. See, you don't, you don't thank people for meeting your expectations, but you do thank them when you realize these tangible things are expressions of love. They're not expected. You don't thank people for expectations. Oh, I expect her to do that. I expect him to do that. No, 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 no. These are choices this person is making. These are tangible demonstrations of love. And it's a good thing for us to recognize them as such and to be kind, to be gracious, to be grateful for those things. Because here's the deal, when, when kindness, and studies show this, I mean, when kindness drifts from our closest relationships, you know, such as a parent-child relationship or a marriage relationship, I mean, when kindness drifts from that relationship, criticism and contempt are eager to step in and take its place. And you, you, you can sense when it happens in a relationship. People just, you can see married couples are just not kind to each other anymore. Criticism, contempt, you know, start to creep in. Intimacy and laughter go out the window. So folks, here's the deal. Kindness is such a simple way to pour life into any relationship, which is why God commands us to do this. He commands us to be kind. God is incredibly kind towards us in terms of all the blessings he gives us, and he wants us to choose kindness. He wants that kindness to spill over into how we treat others. Okay, well, the third loving action that Paul mentions here is humility. God commands us here, clothe yourselves with Humility. Humility is a commonly misunderstood quality. See, we think of a humble person. Oh, they're so humble. You know, a humble person is someone who always puts themselves down. Oh, no, I don't. You know, a compliment. Oh, no, no, I, don't. I really can't do that. You know, it's, it's that sort of, oh, they're so humble. That's not humility at all. I mean, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Oh, I'm such a bad person. Yeah, oh, no, no, I can't really sing. No, no, don't say that. You know, that's not, that's not humility. Humility is thinking of yourself less. In other words, it, 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 it's not putting yourself down. It's choosing to raise up someone else, right? It's choosing to honor, to elevate someone else. And it's a radical concept, seriously. I don't, I don't know if you realize this, but a few years ago, a book came out called Humilitas. It's a study of the history of humility. Um, and, and it's fascinating. John Dixon's the author, and, and uh, I mean, some of his insights are just really, really interesting. I read a summary of it at, online. But, but he makes the case that the most influential and, and inspiring human beings are people of humility. And what's fascinating is here, here he defines humility as the noble choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. That's humility. 
It is the noble choice to forgo your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. See, in other words, it's using your power to serve. Now, who's the best example of this? I mean, Jesus, right? In fact, Dixon makes the point that in the ancient world, before Jesus came along, in the ancient world, greatness was demonstrated and measured through boasting and the ability to use your power for your own advancement. That's how people measured greatness before Jesus came. And then Jesus came, and he revolutionized our world's understanding of what greatness looks like. Humility is now seen as a virtue, and it wasn't before Jesus. It's now seen as a virtue. So here's the question to drive this close to home here. How do the people around us, or who work under us, experience us? Do they experience us as people who use our power and authority to serve, to make them better? Or do we use our power and authority to serve ourselves and to order them around and make sure they make us look better? Huge difference. Huge difference in how it makes people feel. One is demotivating. The other is incredibly motivating and life-giving. I remember years ago, um, taking a voice seminar from an expert, supposed expert in the field. I think he was probably pretty good, but this professional musician guy, he was a total jerk. I mean, a total jerk. He was so full of himself. I mean, even if he had good content, it was so hard to digest any of his content because of his arrogant persona. I just felt sorry for his wife. Seriously, I just thought, oh my goodness, how does she do this? Just put, felt sorry for her. And here's what really grieved my heart. He was a professing Christian. He was a professing Christian. I mean, it just made me wonder, how can a supposed follower of Jesus look so unlike the person he is following? How can we look so unlike the person that we're following? There was an ebook I read a while back. I love the title. It was a great book by Tim Keller, but the title is, it was about humility, but he called it The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I love that. That's humility. It is the freedom of just self-forgetfulness. Humility frees us to focus on the other person. I mean, one of the best ways, I'm going to go back to something I mentioned a moment ago, but I'm going to drive this home a little bit. One of the best ways to demonstrate humility and compassion and kindness, all three of these we've talked about, is by listening. Seriously, I mean, uh, this, this is huge. When we focus on someone and we actually listen to what they're saying, and we ask questions to probe further. We are communicating volumes. We are communicating that they have value, that their desires and interests matter to us. It's huge. And when we don't listen well, it communicates the opposite. When we don't make eye contact, when we're doing something else on our phone or watching something else, when, 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 we, when we interrupt what they're saying to tell our own story, when we don't ask follow-up questions and instead we use what they said as a platform to, for us to launch into our own story. Oh, oh, you think that's bad. My uncle had three hernias. You know, one of those kinds of things. Sort of a can you top this kind of person conversation thing. That just to, to, to listen, to really listen is to demonstrate humility, compassion, and kindness all in one. It is a powerful demonstration of love. Powerful. Every one of us has access to it. In any relationship. Powerful. It can impact our evangelism. Oh, huge. What's one of the main, main complaints about evangelism? Oh, this person didn't listen to what I thought. They just had their own, they were going to tell me the four laws or whatever, right? I mean, that's how people feel this. 
It impacts our marriage. It impacts our workplace. Every relationship could be radically impacted if we just grew as listeners. And it's hard because it requires humility. It's, I want to talk about my stuff. Let's, let's let them talk. Let's hear what's going on with them. Huge, huge, huge. In fact, one author, I love how he describes this. He says, being listened to is so close to being loved that most people can't tell the difference. Being listened to is so close to being loved that most people can't tell the difference. He is so right. Listening is such a powerful way to love and it can pour life into our relationships. Again, if we, if we would just focus, if you're just kind of one thing you want to take away, if we would just focus on being better listeners, if you don't hear anything else in this message, if we would just focus on this, it would significantly impact our relational world. Seriously. And, and maybe that's why God gave us two ears and one mouth. I don't know, but it could be. Um, it, would ser- it would significantly impact our marriage, our relationship with our kids, our workplace, our fellow students. I mean, it, it could be huge. The fourth and fifth characteristics of love that Paul mentions here are gentleness and patience. He writes, clothe yourselves with gentleness and patience. Now I'm learning that these two words are actually intimately connected. Our our son Joshua is God's gift to me to help me work on my patience. Um, He does not have a fast bone in his body. And in contrast, I came out of the womb like 60 miles an hour. Okay. Um, So, so Josh is 15 now. Um, He has some significant cognitive and, and developmental delays. And so we are still having to battle. If you can imagine this 15 year old, we're still having to battle bedtime bath battles. Okay. We're still having those every night. It, it, he, he has no internal motivation to take a bath. None. And so my patience gets tested nearly every night of my life. Um, when he doesn't respond to my directions to get, okay, it's time to get ready for bed. You know how that works? I get frustrated, right? And then he just stays there and I get more and more frustrated and my intensity level goes up and I start to verbally kind of, you know, try to pressure him and push him harder. Now what Raylene, thank God for Raylene and our family, right? What Raylene has tried to drill into my head over these many years um, is that Joshua doesn't respond well to pressuring like that. He, He does respond well to gentleness. So even though everything within me wants to scream, you know, if I can move towards him in gentleness and patience, he responds much better. I can touch him gently and just you know, move towards him gently and with patience, response much de- better. And here's the deal. I don't think Joshua is alone in this. Most all of us here, we respond much better to gentleness and patience than we do to forceful direction. Can all of us agree that's all of us are wired that way? This isn't just Josh. When someone's forcing us, we just instinctively don't do that whether we say it or not. Just, we, 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 all, we all understand how this works. I mean, again, think of how God approached you. Was it forcefully or was it gently? Did God demonstrate patience or impatience? See, God has been incredibly gentle and patient with us, which can serve as a motivator for us to be gentle and patient with others. Okay, now all five of these things we just talked about give us a, an incredible picture, really, of what agape love looks like. So let me just, let me just ask here. Let's just kind of get really practical here. Let me just ask you, is there a particular relationship you can think of right now, a particular relationship in your life right now that needs some weed and feed? 
that needs some life poured into it. And what if God is saying, you're the one I want to do this? I'm not talking about waiting for the slippers. I'm saying you are the one. I want you to apply the weed and feed. I want you to pour life into this relationship. God is asking you and me to choose to love, to choose to demonstrate one of these characteristics in a greater way. What if that, that's the case? And why not do that? In, in his power, choose to be compassionate more and more. In his power, choose to be kind, choose to be humble, choose to be gentle and patient. When we make that choice, when we over and over, we make that choice, well, what happens is we give God room to positively shift the relational atmosphere. Seriously. We're giving God, if we don't make that choice, we're kind of saying, closing the door on that. But when we make that choice, even how it's hard to do, when we make that choice, we are actually giving God room to positively shift the entire relational atmosphere. Which is awesome. Okay, now speaking of shifting relational atmospheres, today is a very, very special day for Christ's community. It's an opportunity for us as a church to actually put into practice some of what we've been talking about today. Today is our child blessing weekend, where every child in this building is going to have a blessing spoken over them. Um, and it's a kind of, it's a, it's a way to, now don't, don't, don't get your kids yet, okay? Just hang on, hang on. I still have some things to say here. I'll let you know. You'll have plenty of time, okay? But I want to just talk about why we do it this way. What is this all about, the child blessing, and why do we do this? Several months ago, I was thinking about child dedication and how we typically do it, what its purpose is. And, and so I started looking at scriptures, started looking at the Bible, and I realized there really is no biblical precedent or requirement for an official one-time child dedication. What seems to be the greater emphasis, and I think greater impact, is this incredible privilege of blessing children of speaking a blessing over our children. It's different than a prayer. It's speaking a blessing, not just once, but repeatedly. This was the pattern in the Old Testament given to parents. This, this pattern, this command to bless. It was also something that we see Jesus doing with children in Mark chapter 10. I mean, the Bible, as I was looking at this, these scriptures, the Bible makes it clear that there is a spiritual impartation that actually occurs when we speak blessing about our children. There is an impartation that actually happens. So I had this radical idea. What if instead of continuing to do child dedications the way we have a few parents coming up front with their children and all that was good, but what if, what if we created an opportunity for every parent to feel empowered to express value and blessing upon their child? What if we as a church equipped and encouraged parents to regularly speak a blessing over their children? See, that, that seems to be, in my mind, seemed to be more of a biblical model. So we decided to try this. We decided to have two weekends a year. We do one in December and Mother's Day. Um, two weekends a year where we bring in all the children to join us in worship. And we lead the parents and the grandparents or grandparents or whoever is with that child. We, we, we lead them. We teach them. We coach them in how to speak a blessing over their child. And our hope is that this very powerful practice will continue. I had a grandma talk to me just a few weeks ago in our lobby. And uh, she was just weird. I was getting to know her a little bit. And she mentioned this. She mentioned how impactful this was. She was here in December with her grandchildren. And that weekend when we did this and she so in, in the service, she spoke a blessing over them, and she continues to do this. So whenever she is at their house, whenever she's visiting her house, the, her grandchildren ask her to do this for them. One is a teenager. One's a teenager, and she wants her grandma to speak a blessing over her whenever her grandma is there. And it's so cool. 
See, that, that's our heart, that this is a continual thing where we as parents or grandparents, we regularly declare and impart a blessing upon their lives, which again can have a huge impact in our children's lives. So the church then, it's a little shift of paradigm here. The church becomes the place where parents are equipped. It's not like us, we're doing, oh, the pastor needs to do it. No, no, no. The church becomes the place where the parents are equipped and encouraged to regularly do this amazing things, this amazing thing for their children. So here's what's going to happen. <clears throat> In a minute, the worship team is going to come out here, um, start leading worship as usual. When they start, when they start, I want all, all the parents here, you can just go and get your child. Now, parents of tiny tots, children, you can go directly where you checked your children in. Okay, their the, their parents, uh, tiny tots is ready for you there. Parents of Kids Connection, a little different. Instead of going to Kids Connection area, you can pick up your Kids Connection kids in the lobby. Our leaders have brought them to the lobby to make picking them up easier. Now, parents, you need to bring your child's sticker. We're going to be checking them out just the way we usually do. We want this to be a safe and secure thing. So in light of that, um, during the next 10 minutes or so, no one will be allowed to leave the building with a child. Okay, that's just a safety thing. Once you've picked up your children, then bring them back here with you where we will be worshiping. Um, and if you, at that point, you need to spread out a little bit in the aisles, that's totally fine. Um, when everyone is back in this room with their children, when everyone's back in this room, I'm gonna come back up and we're gonna, and I'm gonna just show you how you as parents, grandparents can do this. We're gonna do it together. We're gonna bless every child in this room. And again, I'll explain that when I come back up. And even if you don't have children with you, this is awesome. This is going to be a cool thing to see and experience. It's going to be a little chaotic too, but that's okay. All right. Um, so why don't we stand? Why don't we stand? Worship team's going to come out. Parents, feel free to go now. Get your children and bring them back with you. Okay. We're going to do a couple songs here. Bring them back with you and then I'll come back up and we'll go from there.